I forget, because every week I tell myself this, and every week I forget, if before some of the gentlemen leave today, if you can help us get the big pulpit back up here, I would very much appreciate it. Trish would very much appreciate it, because she would like to be able to get into it and change the altar scarves. Although not for next week, because we're doing communion, so we'll be back to white. So, But if you will stay after and help me move the pulpit, I would very much appreciate it. Um, I also want to take this as an opportunity to remind you that this is the last Sunday um, that we are um, engaged in this study of sussing out the implications of Easter and the, the nature of the resurrection. Um, next week, we will start our journey through First and Second Samuel. Um, it is going to be a journey through First and Second Samuel. There is a lot there. Um, but uh, we probably will not go all in one go. We'll probably go for a while and then take a break and then come back to it and go for a while and take a break. Um, um, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to make you go through 40 consecutive weeks of Samuel. Somebody just said darn. All right, that's it. We're doing it. Um, it is important to note, and we'll get to this next week, the reason we're doing First and Second Samuel is in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's, it's, one, it's one book. It's one text. Um, it's intended to be one text. It's not intended to be two. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we're doing that. But we have, since Easter Sunday morning, we have been, been thinking about contemplating and wrestling with the implications of the resurrection. The implications of Easter. What does this, what does this thing mean? The resurrection. And so we've looked at, at a couple of different aspects of the nature of the resurrection. And today, we're looking at the evangelistic nature of the resurrection. And so we're in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 20. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me. If you don't, grab one of those black hardback Bibles in front of you. And if you need a copy of Scripture to call your very own, please take that with you today as our gift to you. So, you probably know, if we're in Matthew, and we're at the end of Matthew, and the title of the sermon is The Evangelistic Nature of the Resurrection, this is a great commission. So will you stand with me as we read it together? The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we turn to Your Word this morning, as we continue to contemplate the, the, the meaning and the implication of the resurrection of the Son, as we think about Your call and Your mission to us to reach the nations, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to You, our God and our King, the One to whom all authority has been given. Amen. You know, from time to time, we do this. We look at a very well-known text, a text that we 
think we know really well. And in fact, this is a text that just over the last couple of years, I've actually preached a couple of different times. But today, I don't want us to look primarily at verses 19 and the first part of 20, which that's normally what we look at when we look at the Great Commission, right? We, we look at, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded of you, period. That's if we even get into, to be honest, get into 20. Some people just look at verse 19 and they stop before we get it to the teaching part, which is an important part of it. You know, and I think most of us are going to know the Great Commission. Most of us are going to be familiar with this passage. Most of us, you grew up in either in a, in a Baptist church or, or, or maybe like myself in a more evangelical-leaning Methodist church, and you're familiar. You know the Great Commission. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, not everybody does. I have a, I have a, a, a friend whom I'm going to be as generic about as possible because this friend and their family on occasion watch our services. I don't want to be offensive. But this friend grew up in what we would think of as a mainline tradition. And just a few years ago, their spouse said something to them about the Great Commission, and they had no idea what their spouse was talking about. Grew up every Sunday in church. No idea. Had never heard the phrase Great Commission. Had never actually read this text. So, so I just want to point out to you that you're perhaps have gifts that have been given to you that you are unaware of. In this case, the gift of this text. Because if we grew up, and you grew up supporting missionaries, and if you grew up Baptist, and you grew up giving to Lottie Moon in the winter, and, and Annie Armstrong in the spring, and every other mission offering that the WMU comes up with, there are about eight or 9,000 of them over the course of the year, that you've heard this passage, right? If you grew up with missionaries coming to your church, you probably heard them, you know, reference this passage as they were showing the slideshow of their work among whatever unreached people group and whatever part of the world they were in. But, but it's not just a text for missionaries. And by missionaries, I mean people specifically commissioned by a church or a denomination to, to go somewhere in the world. That, that traditional understanding of missionary. Now this is, this is a passage that's intended for all of us. Because in a very real sense, we're all intended to be missionaries. We're all intended to be on a mission. We like to be on a mission, don't we? I'm at least, I think, I'm going to speak for the men in the room. We like to know what it is we're supposed to be doing, right? We like being told, here you go, do this, and doing it. We, I, at least, appreciate that. We like to, to have a mission. We like knowing what it is that we're supposed to be doing. 
For those of you who are teachers, you have a mission, right? Sometimes that mission comes in a very confusing set of standards from the state. For those of you who are accountants, you have a mission, right? It's to get everybody's taxes filed on time and no one goes to jail. That's the goal, right? I don't ever want to meet a man in a black suit and a black tie who tells me that he's from any three-letter organization. The top of that three-letter organization that I don't want to speak to is the IRS. Don't want to meet a man in black. But we like having missions. We even like movies and TV shows about missions, right? Particularly if they are impossible missions. Dun, 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 dun. I love the fact that Jamie is still little enough that I can, I can do the, the, the suspension down for him and he can pretend like he's on a mission impossible. One of, my, one of my favorite movies, I don't watch it a lot because it's so long and so intense, but one of my favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. There's a mission, right? Tom Hanks' group is given the mission of what? Saving Private Ryan. It's right there in the title, the mission. Right there in the title. Another one of my favorite movies, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indy has got a mission, right? Beat the Nazis to the Ark. Of course, he fails in that mission. But we love movies and TV shows about mission. Even, we've been watching a lot of Thomas. Thomas the Train, Choo Choo. My day is relegated to now with the toddler standing in the middle of the room pointing at the TV and going, Choo Choo! But even in Thomas, right? Mr. Topham Hatt shows up. He gives the trains a mission. You know, sometimes your mission is very simple. You're Percy, and your mission is to get the mail to where it's supposed to go on time. And sometimes it's more complicated than that, and now I'm getting way too deep in the lore of Thomas the Train. But, but Christians have a mission as well. This is our mission. We talk about it as the Great Commission, but it's our mission that we're given to do. But again, we often focus there on verses 19 and the first part of 20. And so I want us to spend some time in 16, 17, and 18 and the last part of 20 today. Because I think there we're going to see a connection between this mission that we've been given by God and the resurrection. So let's go back to verse 16. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So let's start. Let's, let's ask the most basic question. Perhaps you're not terribly familiar with the story of Jesus and you know that Jesus has, but you do know that Jesus has 12 disciples and you read this text and it says the 11. Wait, I thought there were 12. Well, Matthew was reminding us that one of the disciples is missing. 
Judas is missing. Now, why is Judas missing? Judas is missing because in the aftermath of Jesus' arrest, trial, conviction, and execution, Judas has killed himself. So one of the things that Matthew is doing here is Matthew is reminding us that this passage takes place after Judas is no longer with them. He's making a point about when this happened. This happened after the events of the Passion Week, when there are only 11 disciples and not 12. But the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And I, I had to go back and read carefully, and I cannot find anywhere in Matthew where Jesus, Matthew records Jesus directing them to go. If we, if we go back, the last thing, uh, I mean, he tells them to, to, to leave for Galilee, but nothing about a mountain. That's the last words of Jesus there in verse 10. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. But he doesn't mention anything about the mountain. And yet Matthew says they go to Galilee and to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Now if we go back and we think about, if we think about the book of Matthew, and we think about how Matthew has told the story of Jesus, the story that Matthew was there for, the story that Matthew lived, he, he's still telling the story. We do that, right? When we tell a story, and it can be a true story, but we tell it in a way because we're trying to get a certain point across to our listeners, right? Like I heard a story last night about a fish that was caught, and I am sure every word of that story was true. But it was told in such a way to have a certain effect on the people who were listening to it, right? It was told in such a way to be humorous. It could have been told in such a way that we were all sobbing at the end of the story, but it was told in such a way for it to be humorous. It was moderately successful in that task. If you see Ernie laughing, it was his story. But we do that, right? I mean, and it is, it's a true story. There was a witness to that story who was present when the story was being told. It's a true story of the fish that got away. But it was told in such a way to elicit a particular response in the people who were listening. Matthew is telling us an absolutely true story that he was there for. But he's telling it in such a way because he's trying to create a certain effect in his listeners. If we think about who Matthew is writing to, we know this, right? Matthew is a gospel writer who is primarily concerned about writing to whom? Jews. And so Matthew, as he tells the story of Jesus, Matthew tells the story in such a way that Jews are going to see certain things in it. If you flip all the way back to the beginning of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5, which is where how Matthew sort of really begins in an intense way to describe the ministry and teaching of Jesus, one starts in chapter 5 of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount. And as you go through Matthew, you see the mountain over and over and over and over again. In Matthew, it's very clear that the mountain is where Jesus and his disciples go, go for special connection and where Jesus brings special revelation to his disciples. Okay, we can see that in Matthew. 
But I said it had to do with who his audience was, the Jews. Why would that matter? Where do the Jews go to receive special revelation, direction, and communion with God? Mount Sinai. And so Matthew here, in just this one verse of verse 16, has told us several things, right? He's told us, his readers, that this happens after the death of Judas, meaning after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's also telling us ahead of time that we're about to understand something new about Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus, our connection with Jesus, our knowledge of Jesus is about to go deeper and grow. Because that's what he set set us up for. Through the entirety of the book of Matthew, he set us up that when we go to the mountain, we learn something new about God. When we go to the mountain, our relationship with God grows. That's what he set us up for. And so now here, at the very end, as he's about to finish his narrative, his telling of the story, he takes us back to the mountain one more time. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Another sentence is just absolutely loaded if we really look at it, right? So they see Jesus. Well, this is an important thing. If we go back and we read Matthew's narrative, right, of the resurrection, not all of the 11 have seen Jesus. In fact, none of the 11 have seen Jesus in the way Matthew tells the story. The way Matthew tells the story, it's the women who have seen Jesus. Matthew does not tell us does not, does not tell us the whole of what happens on Easter Sunday morning of Peter and John going to the tomb. So, so when the readers, in the way that Matthew is telling the story, Matthew is telling them that they are, this is for them, they're seeing the risen Lord for the first time. Now, we know, and Matthew knew, and probably Matthew's readers knew the whole story. They knew that, but Matthew is doing this for a reason. He's trying to build some suspense in the story, right? So what are the words that Jesus is going to give to the 11 after his resurrection? And we know that Jesus said lots of things. But for Matthew, the way Matthew is telling the story, the way Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, the words that we are about to hear, and if your Bible is like mine, the words right below where I am that are in red, are this special Revelation from God that is the first thing, the most important thing the disciples are hearing after the resurrection of Jesus. They saw him. They worshipped. Well, that's an appropriate response, right? I would hope if Jesus suddenly was here, present among us, that we would Worship him, assuming that we knew that it was Jesus, right? But if Jesus suddenly showed up and worshiped among us, do you think some of us might be a little skeptical? Right? I mean, I mean let's be honest. If, if some guy walks through the back door right now and says, yo, I'm Jesus, we'd be like, uh-huh. 
Sure you are. Because as human beings, we, be, we encounter the world in very naturalistic ways, don't we? Even, even if you've never taken the time to really study Newton or the laws of physics or chemistry or any of that sort of stuff, you know that certain things happen, right? You know that if something goes up, what happens? It comes down, eventually. Even a helium balloon that gets away from a kid at the Disney World eventually comes down, right? Unfortunately, it often comes down in the Everglades. May it choke a python to death. Sorry, they're not supposed to be there. Anyway, everything that goes up comes down. Everything that, you know, if, if, if something's hot, it burns, right? If something's cold, it does whatever the opposite of burn is. Burns you, actually, with cold, right? We know, we know these things. We, we interact with the world in a very naturalistic way. And what happens when somebody dies? For all of us, right? Unless some of you have a story that I've never heard before, and if you do, I want to hear it. For all of us, every single person that we have ever known who died did what? They stayed dead. Now, the day will come, and the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, those in belief will be raised to life, and those who are in, not in belief will be raised to eternal death. But for right now, the way the world works, when you die, you stay dead. Jesus died. He was supposed to stay dead. And so when he's not, and when suddenly he's there on the mountain with them, can we appreciate the fact that some part of their brain is going, now wait a minute here. What's going on? Now wait a minute here. I, I don't really understand. It's important to know that the word here that, that's translated as doubted, probably a better translation is Hesitation. They know it's Jesus, they see it's Jesus, they understand that it's Jesus, but there's still some hesitation. Brothers and sisters, if you have never had hesitation in the worship of God, you are a better person than I am. Haven't we all experienced that at some point? We gather to worship God and there's... there's there's something inside of us that just sort of hesitates a little bit. There's that, there's that little voice somewhere in the back of our brain, that voice of the liar who says, all right, you don't really believe this, do you? Come on, Carter. People who die stay dead. You know that. That little voice. And I'm... And, and, let me tell you, if you have never had that hesitation, pray for me. Because <laughs> I've had it. I have it. I think we all do. The 11 had it. Because the 11 were experiencing in a way that this side of the new heaven and the new earth, they were experiencing something that we will never experience. Not in this life. 
And that is the physical presence of the resurrected Lord. Might that be a little overwhelming? Might that stir up just a little bit of, wait, what's happening here inside of us? And so, it's interesting to me. They saw him. They worshipped. Some doubted. I want to know who it was that didn't. Then Jesus came near. Now, this is interesting, right? Because Matthew's just given us another detail. Jesus hasn't been near to them. Jesus has been a little further away. They've been seeing him as if at a distance. But now he comes near to them and he speaks. And what does he say? Not, surprise. Not, nope, I'm really me. Not, where's Judas? Not, Peter, I told you so. No. The first thing that Jesus says to them, here in Matthew, the first thing that Jesus says to them, as they are worshiping, and as some have this hesitation inside, the first thing that Jesus says to them as he draws near to them is, all heaven, excuse me, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's trying to help them understand and deal with and overcome that hesitation. Right? He's reminding them who he is. And that he is, in fact, who he always said that he was. The living son of the living God. Now, it's important for him to establish his authority, right? Not just because there's this hesitation, but because he's about to give them a mission briefing. He's about to sit them down and tell them what their job is. And if somebody's going to sit down and tell you what to do, you want to make sure that they've got the authority to tell you what to do, right? I mean, this is, this is why in lots of different organizations, military and other, there's a rank structure. So that you know it's clear who has the authority to tell who, somebody else what to do. And is there anybody who ranks lower in authority than a second lieutenant? No. Because they don't know what they're doing. But they have authority. Because they have a commission. Anyway. Jesus is establishing his authority because he's about to give them this briefing. He's about to tell them what to do. He's, he's telling the eleven, and subsequently us, that he has the authority to tell us what to do. He's telling the eleven, and subsequently us, that he is the one who gets to call the shots. Not just on this, right? Not just I have the authority to tell you what to do now because I'm your rabbi, and that's what rabbis do, right? That's what teachers do. They, they tell the disciples, the t students, what to do. No, no, no. He says all authority. All authority. And in one of my favorite jokes, the Greek here that we translate as all means all. All. All authority in heaven 
and on earth has been given to the Son. Been given to the Son by the whom? Been given to the Son by the Father. There is nothing that is outside of his authority. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. As he was a, it's from a speech that he gave at the, uh, at the foundation of the free, it was a speech at the Free University. I think it was at the foundation of Free University in Amsterdam. And Kuyper says, there is not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus does not cry out, mine. All authority. But what establishes his authority? How do we know that he's, I mean, I could walk in, I could, I could stand up here right now this morning and tell you, God has given me all authority in heaven and on earth, and now you've got to listen to me. And if you do that, I hope the next thing that happens is that the vice chair of deacons calls the chair of deacons and says, we're having a meeting tonight. He's got to go. You've got to establish your authority, right? You've got to prove, you got, you, you got to prove that you've got that kind of authority, particularly when you're talking about all authority. The proof that the disciples needed to prove that he had all authority was the fact that he was standing there with him. The proof they needed was the resurrection. The, the resurrection was the testimony to who Jesus was, to his power, to his identity, and to his authority. And therefore, the Great Commission, this, this, this missioning of the church, flows directly from the victory of the resurrection. It is because of the resurrection that we go into all the world. It's because of the resurrection that we baptize in the name of whom? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus was not baptized in the triune name of God. But we baptize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that we teach people to obey all of the things that Jesus commanded us. Why? Because He was who He said He was, and He proved it in the resurrection. The resurrection is not the end of the story. The resurrection is a part of the story, a central, key, important part, a part of the story without which there is no story, but it's not the end of the story. It is what assures us of total victory, but it's only after the resurrection that the mission of the church becomes clear for us to go into all the world, to all nations, and proclaim the good news of Jesus. It's the resurrection that causes us to seek to make disciples and not mere converts. What does Jesus say? Make disciples, make followers by baptizing and by teaching. So we know that. We know that part, 19 and 20. Let's look real quick 
before we wrap up, let's look real quick at that last part of verse 20. Jesus has come. He's established his authority. He's proven that he is who he says he is. He's given a mission to the disciples. But notice, he doesn't end his message to the disciples with their mission. He ends with this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He leaves with words of hope and words of comfort. Because here's the thing, when we go into all the world, to all the nations, preaching his word, making disciples, baptizing and teaching, we're going to need the presence of Jesus with us, aren't we? There's some really hostile places in this world. And that's just Robinson County. Jesus is able to promise us, to promise us that he will be with us always because of the resurrection. Because he is who he says he is. Because he's the risen living son of the living God. Because he is God. He will be with us. So as we think about our mission, as we think about the need to evangelize, as the need to disciple, we, we can't think of it as this, this add-on to who we are. It is central to who we are as the church. It is our, it is our mission that we have been given by God. You may notice we have a slide every Sunday morning. Fairmont First Baptist Church strives to point people to Jesus by loving God, loving others, and making disciples. It's the great commandment and the great commission together. Love God, love others, make disciples. But it is our mission because it is central to not only who we are, but to who Jesus is and to his resurrection. And it is the source of our hope, the source of our power, the source of our authority to go into the world flows from him. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 